0: Welcome to multifamily real estate investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. Happy to be with you as always this week for a Q and A session. Throughout the year, we get lots and lots of questions, which I am happy to respond to individually, and we gather them up and every now and then do a Q and A. And today we have one, two, three, four, five, six questions we're going to deal with. So let's dive in. If you have a question about any of the answers I am providing today, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. And please do not forget that on January 7th, we will be hosting our annual State of the Multifamily Marketplace 2021. It is a live webinar. If you are registered, you'll not only be able to attend the live session, but you'll also, regardless of whether you attend or not, receive a copy of the slide deck and a link to the recording prior to it going live on marapolling.com. Please go visit the Learning Center, click on webinars, and register for the State of the Multifamily uh, Market 2021. Okay, so let's get to the questions. The first question uh, is a recent one, and that is, why not Class C? If you've been a listener of the Multifamily Real Estate Investing podcast for any length of time, you know how much we like Class B. We refer to it as the Goldilocks class. There's lots and lots of reasons we enjoy the safety, security, stability of class B multifamily that has absolutely shown itself during 2020 as the multifamily marketplace has been a stable place to invest, more stable, more so in the class B space. And class A's are performing well. Rents have moved up a little bit in class C's and occupancy is pretty strong right now. Now, Class C also does have some bad debt issues associated with its tenancies, but in general, it's not performing poorly right now. So it's a good question. Why not invest in Class Cs? During a recession, during a downturn, during an economic slowdown, whatever term you want to use for this space that we're in right now, The market would absolutely shift away from the balance of a B with some some money that could be made in A's and some money that could be made in C's. It's going to shift a little so that B's are still a solid investment, but that tail shrinks on the A side and gets bigger on the C side. And that makes a lot of sense, right? People are looking for value. Uh, I need to make a dollar stretch a little further. The same reason that A tenants have moved into our B properties, there's probably some of our B tenants that have either decided not to renew, or possibly couldn't simply couldn't afford to stay, and they moved out and moved to a, a C asset. So why not invest in a C? Well, because you're going to own real estate through the entirety of the economic cycle, not just this particular phase, whatever phase it is we're in, whether it's recession or recovery or growth or maturation. You're going to own through that entire cycle and probably through multiple cycles. Now, Cs are not bad investments. They simply have a different performance characteristic than Bs. Bs are buffered during downturns by As, because some of those A tenants move down. And they're also protected when we go into recovery, because tenants that are in the multifamily space, some of them are going to be able to buy a home when we get into recovery and growth, which means they'll leave the rental space. And when they do that, there's also C's, C tenants, that are going to want a better school a safer neighborhood, more space, green belt, whatever it might happen to be, they're going to move in behind them in the B space. So Bs absolutely will feel some of the up and down, the tugging of what goes on throughout the economic cycle, but they're in a spike, right? Whereas a C, as we move into growth, a C may struggle to find quality uh, tenants and to manage rents as opposed to uh, B's and as opposed to A's. A's may flourish when we get into that space. So nothing wrong with C's, nothing wrong with A's. That's not where our focus is. And we think if you're looking for security and stability, that multifamily absolutely checks the box. B is kind of like a double check in our mind. Okay. What if 1031 goes away? So I had a Uh, a client, this was one of our investors, asked me this question um, a couple months ago, prior to the election. Hey, if the election turns out like X, do you think 1031s would go away? And if they did, what would we do? So the answer I gave that individual was, no, I don't think 1031s are at risk of going away, although You never can tell what the future may hold, but I don't believe that's a likelihood that has uh, any high degree of probability associated with it. And I believe that for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is uh, 1031 is one of the ways as a collective, as a society, that we support investments in real estate. And investments in real estate benefit all of us because all of the commercial property, whether it's offices or industrial properties or retail space or multifamily, all of those areas benefit from these uh, elements in the tax code. And those benefits allow us to have more reasonable rental rates. And those more reasonable rental rates are of benefit to society as a whole. So if we get rid of some significant element of the tax code, there's a potential ripple effect back that ultimately has a negative impact on the economy. So that's my personal opinion about it. Obviously, you could argue uh, a whole bunch of different ways uh, about 1031s. But what's more important is the second half of that person's question, which was, what would you do if they went away? Well, If 1031s go away, there are other vehicles that you can use to defer the tax exposure that's out there. And uh, one of those is opportunity zones, right? The, The idea behind an opportunity zone is the government saying, if you invest here, then we'll allow you to take that gain that you have and... Uh, either reduce it or potentially eliminate the tax liability associated with it. Now, I don't know much more about opportunity zones than that, and here's the reason why. By definition, an opportunity zone is not an area where you have a secure, stable marketplace where you have a local economy that is healthier than the the regional statewide, or national economies. And those are factors that we look at in terms of reducing risk in the investment space. So if the incentive is to go invest in areas that are economically challenged, well, then this might be an appropriate reward in addition to a higher return than what we might see in a more secure and stable space. But it's completely out of phase with the kind of investment that we would make. So we don't look at opportunity zones. You may, with some of the dollars you have in your personal investment portfolio, take some of those dollars that are a little more towards the speculative end of your spectrum and invest them in investments that involve opportunity zones. There's also a whole bunch of other rules around opportunity zones. And as I said, we're not involved. So that's one way you could deal with the fact that um, a, not having a 1031 could expose you to tax down the road. Another actually leads right into another question that uh, we've been asked, uh, and again, this is from a uh, an individual that actually we've worked with for quite a few years now that owns uh, a portfolio of assets, and and the question was really why a 1031, why not just refinance the asset? Uh, or put supplemental debt on it, and use that as a way to take out the lazy equity. And so that's an absolute answer to the question of what would you do if a 1031 went away? You could move to a strategy that says, when we get to that point that we have lazy equity, uh, and of some significance, right, not a dollar, but a significant percentage not 3%, not 5%, but probably 10 15 20%, something in that range, maybe even more, uh, that you could use a combination of either supplemental debt, so think second mortgage, or new debt, so pay off the existing debt and put new debt in place in which you would borrow out not only the amount to pay off and retire the existing loan, but additional funds beyond that, and that additional amount would represent a portion of the lazy equity in the asset that is built up. And you could get that working somewhere else, put it into another property, put it into improvements, uh, it, it simply bank it, right? Take it, put it in a, a T-bond, uh, you know, something else. Um, but you would be able to free that uh, that those funds up. So what's the difference between executing a 1031, and using this refinance strategy. If I refinance a property, well, I could hold the asset not just five years, but I could hold it 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. And during that entire time frame, I'm not paying any tax on the increase in the value of the asset. And yet I might every five years... Refinance the asset and pull that lazy equity out so that I am continually accessing the equity that's in the asset and I'm able to put that money to work. If I did a 1031, I'd put that money to work in a new asset. I could do the same here. I could borrow that money out and go buy another property and do it again and do it again and do it again and build myself a portfolio in that manner. That's absolutely a good strategy to use. Uh, it's one that uh, we're quite familiar with. And if 1031s magically disappeared, that would be one of the tools in our toolkit that we would look at. All right. So if that's a possibility, why don't we just do that? Why why are we doing 1031s? 1031s take time and energy. Uh, It costs money to sell an asset. It costs money to buy an asset. Why are we doing all that? Well, there's a couple reasons why we look to sell, right? And this, this is another question that we will get from time to time. When do you sell? What's, what's How do you come up with the time frame for when you would plan to exit an asset? Well, we do it for two reasons. One is we keep an eye on that effective leverage, right? What's the effective loan to value? It starts off maybe in the low 70s or even in the 60s for a typical asset that we would have. And then it trends downwards, right? And it gets into the 50s, eventually maybe even down into the 40s, right? So if you're below 50% and you have the ability to go back to 70, well, that's 20% of the value of the asset that's sitting inside the asset, not doing any work. Generally, for the kind of projects that we would look at, and again, if you're thinking about getting into the multifamily space as a passive investor, We would strongly advocate looking for five-year-ish kinds of holds in this secure, stable, class B kind of space. If you're building your own portfolio, uh, we think the same is true, that you want to look for an asset where, over the course of five years, you can grow the value of the asset to the point that you've got some equity in there that you could access. Now, why do we think a 1031 makes sense? Well, that has to do with the ability to depreciate the asset. And not just on a straight line basis, but using some tools that we avail ourselves of, cost segregation, and some of the provisions in the 2017 uh, Jobs uh, and Tax Cut Act that, um, that allow us to accelerate some depreciation above and beyond cost segregation, puts us in a position where by the time we get to year five, We've received a lot of tax value, a lot of tax efficiency, and we've built up this lazy equity. So much so that selling out of the asset, rolling into a new asset, gives us a similar and actually higher return than simply pulling that cash out. Here's one of the reasons why. When I pull that cash out, I can't pull all of it out. I can only pull a portion of it out because I'm limited by the loan-to-value value Uh, relationship on that existing loan, or if I pay that loan off, what I would get in terms of loan to value on a new uh, acquisition. When I come out of a 1031, I take all of those dollars, my original investment plus all of my gain, and I roll all of that in, and often can end up with a larger asset base than I would if I simply did a uh, refinance. Let's say that they're equal though. Let's let's say that you did it in such a way that you'd end up with the exact same asset base. If you do a 1031, you have a new asset that's larger, and even though you've rolled some depreciable base in, you're in a position where there's still more depreciation to be had. If it's the existing asset that's simply being held longer term, You've already taken the biggest bite of the apple. Now, if you're doing straight line depreciation, you aren't. You haven't. But that also means you've left some a significant amount of tax efficiency on the table. So I'm going to assume, as we do, that you've taken advantage of cost segregation and andor some of the acceleration provisions that I mentioned a moment ago. All of that would mean that you've got an asset that you've taken a lot of the tax value out of. That's a great time to look at selling. So Our preferred method would be to utilize the 1031 provisions in the tax code around year five or six or seven and sell out of that first generation asset and move into a second generation asset. That gives us a higher return on that second generation asset. It puts that lazy equity to work, and it puts us in a position where we get additional depreciation to benefit from in terms of the tax efficiency. Like I said, nothing wrong with refinancing and pulling that equity out. Lots and lots of folks do that, and that may be a strategy that works for you. It's not as tax efficient as using uh, 1031. So I just mentioned five to seven years is kind of a time frame for when we would target the sale of an asset. It has to do with that lazy equity, and it has to do with the Uh, tax efficiency opportunities. So that's when we would plan to sell. So another question that we get from time to time is, well, how do you know if you should sell? Let's say that you receive an unsolicited offer. Somebody comes a knocking on the door and says, I like your asset. I'd rather own it than have you own it. I'm willing to write you a check for X dollars. How do we know if that's a good deal, if we should say yes or not? Well, I can tell you from our personal experience, some of that has to do with just the timing of it. We get unsolicited offers on all the assets that we own almost all the time. There's almost always an unsolicited offer floating around out there. We get them on assets literally that we just closed on, that we just purchased. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with folks that are out on fishing expeditions as opposed to serious buyers. And so for some period of time, when the team will bring me that information and say, hey, we've got somebody interested, I will often just say, no, we're keep our head down. Let's focus on executing our plan. It is not time for us to think about an exit to this asset. Let's move forward. Now, when we get a little farther down the road, two years, three years, somewhere in that time frame, we'll be open to at least listening to someone. So how do we determine if the price they're offering is a price that's worth selling at? And there's a couple ways that um, we think about it. And again, I would encourage if you have your own portfolio that you give some thought to this in terms of how you might exit if uh, somebody approached you uh, with an offer for one of your assets. And conversely, if you are a passive investor, uh, this might be a conversation you'd have with your sponsor in terms of, so how might we exit early? And how would you give some thought to that so that you can optimize the value that I would receive uh, as an investor in your uh, project? And that's absolutely a conversation that we have with, um, with our members. So. Um, Let's just make a, let's make an example up and it'll be a little easier to uh, articulate this. So let's say that we've got a property that we purchased for $7 million and we have some closing costs that we incurred and we've also put some money into the asset, maybe a million dollars or something in terms of some improvements. And with all of that, uh, we've uh, improved the net operating income on the asset to the point that we think the asset's worth $9.5 million. That's, that's the value we put on it today, and that's consistent with the pro that we built when we did our acquisition underwrite. 9500000 million. We're on track. We're feeling good about it. Somebody calls and says, hey, I'd like to buy your property, and I'm willing to pay you $9.5 million. Okay, that's what it's worth. It's probably a pretty reasonable offer. I think that's probably pretty fair. There's absolutely no reason for us to accept that. Why would we want to sell an asset for what we think it's worth prematurely? Our, our business plan is to continue to operate this asset and to grow it in value. If we were to sell it now, even if they upped that number so that we would net the kind of number that we should, given our current performa, that's not our game plan. Our game plan isn't to churn and turn assets. It's to build value over time. We want to build some of that lazy equity so we can take advantage of it when we do a 1031. We want to take advantage of the tax efficiency that's in that asset. And if we're only two or three years into it, why would we sell for what it's worth? So... The person comes back and says, OK, I understand. How about we offer you $10.5 million, give you an extra million dollars? OK, that's interesting. How, how can I evaluate that, right? I, if I think it's worth 9 and a half right now, and somebody is offered 10 how can I evaluate if that extra million dollars is enough? Well, we have a pretty simple tool. We go back and grab our Performa. Remember I said we're performing pretty much in line with the Performa. So our original underwrite is holding steady, which is actually really good performance after two years. There's almost always some deviation, uh, some performance higher, some lower. Uh, if, it, if it averages out to being on plan, that's, that's good. We're happy about that. We take a look at that Performa, and we're going to look at, well, what's the value that we forecast? for the end of year three, the end of year four, the end of year five. And if the price that someone is willing to offer us is what I call three-year money, if somebody's willing to pay me today, what I think the asset's gonna be worth, say, three years from now, that's probably enough of a premium that we could look at pulling the trigger and exiting early doing our 1031 and moving on to the next asset. Now, that's not greedy. It simply is, well, that's our plan. Our plan is to sell for that kind of a number. If you want to buy it, you got to pay that kind of a number. Now, for some, that won't work in their modeling. I completely understand. I might not pay that much for the asset, but if somebody models it out, and comes to the conclusion that that is a fair number, and wants to go forward, we will happily sell an asset earlier. And that happens, in our experience, about half the time. Uh, It is less likely that we get through the full hold period before we sell. Two years, three years, four years, a very common time frame. And that has probably more to do with the conservative nature of our modeling and the execution of our plans than it does with uh, you know, kind of where the market is. Uh, we're looking for assets where we can reduce the downside risk. By definition, if you reduce downside risk, you're going to increase the likelihood of positive events. So again, for those of you building your own portfolios or those of you investing passively, uh, it's a misnomer to think low risk, low returns. Uh, You can invest with modest risk and still see good returns, because that risk component simply means you're having a higher likelihood of positive events occurring. Okay. So we absolutely can sell earlier than our plan. We're also really comfortable just sticking with our plan, five to seven years. If when it comes time to do a 1031, the market condition just isn't right for some reason, and I would have a hard time right now describing what those conditions might be, but let's just assume we get to that five to seven year window and it just doesn't make sense selling. Well, then we can do that refi strategy, right? Um, we could refinance and hold on to the property for another five years or so. In many instances, our, our properties are structured with longer-term debt, so we don't need to refinance. We'd actually simply put a supplemental loan on to take that lazy equity out, and we'd hang on to it, right? So we, we give ourselves lots of options. Options are important, um, as, as you'll learn And again, quick little commercial for our State of the Multifamily Marketplace 2021 on January 7th. As you'll learn in that session, our crystal ball is foggy and cracked and every bit as out of whack as everybody else's. We will share some really good data that we have uh, access to that we think helps paint a picture for next year. But nobody knows what next year looks like. And if you don't know what 2021 looks like, How on earth can we know with any degree of certainty what 2024 or 2025 looks like so structuring asset acquisitions with options in them where we have a lot of flexibility those are good things to do and that's something that we absolutely would look at the last question i want to make sure that i have some time to get to is again a recent question so uh, some of you, because uh, I got this from a few of you, some of you have seen some of the recent announcements and articles that the SEC has adopted an expanded definition for an accredited investor. Uh, and if you, if you aren't familiar with that term, an accredited investor is an investor that in the eyes of the SEC has sufficient capability to understand the types of investments, these alternative real estate investments uh, that we offer and that other sponsors like us offer, uh, and make an informed decision as to whether or not they should uh, invest. Uh, The accredited investor provision is a protection. It's a way that the SEC helps protect to make sure that individuals that don 't have the skill set today and it is a timing issue right it's as of the day uh, that don't have the skill set to necessarily fully engage in the decision making process that they're simply precluded now uh, I always forget what they're called the little I think Venn diagrams right so the the universe of accredited investors and the universe of investors that understand the investments do intersect, and there are absolutely a very large number of investors that are deemed accredited that absolutely have the ability and do understand these kinds of investments, the risks that are involved, the return waterfalls, all the things that go into them. However, they don't overlap completely. There are investors out there who fully understand and comprehend how all of this works, but they're not accredited. And the SEC understands that. And so the SEC revised the definition of an accredited investor in order to allow more individuals to participate in the process. Now, the manner in which they did that was to include some professional classifications that individuals may have. And the easiest way for me to help you with that whole process is actually to engage with you individually about your particular background and to help you go through the accreditation process. We work with folks every week that call and say, I'm interested in what's going on in this space. I don't know if I'm accredited. And generally, we can either help them determine that, or we'll actually run them through the accreditation process using our our third-party partner. And, uh, and help them get an answer as to whether or not they are accredited. We, Mara Polling, only work with accredited investors for two reasons. One, it is a regulatory requirement for the type of investment work that we do. And two, we also think it's appropriate. It's a little m- more conservative. You know, there is another classification of investor out there called sophisticated, which some sponsors will. Uh, work with. We've simply made an election not to do that. It narrows the, the field, if you will, in terms of who we might work with. Um, but we're comfortable with that because it's just part of our conservative nature. If you are a sophisticated investor and have been a sophisticated investor and you think now you might be accredited, I'd be happy to talk to you. And again, that's it has got nothing to do with whether you want to work with us or not. If you're simply lurking looking to understand uh, accreditation better, uh, I'd be happy to talk to you about there. You can also Google accredited investor, you'll see a lot of uh, articles and a lot of information that's come out uh, recently about it. Uh, this is something that just happened in the second half of um, of 2020. I hope the answers I've given to the questions that we pulled together from you all uh, have been valuable. If one of the answers I gave made some sense, but not complete sense, and you've got a question, let me know. If it triggered a thought in you about, oh, I thought you were going to talk about this, but you didn't, shoot me that one as well. I will do everything I can to answer your question directly to you, but I'll also keep those for the next time we have a Q&A session, uh, or if there's some content we're going to offer Uh, Around that subject matter, we'll make sure your question gets integrated into what we're going to do. Now, last week, I talked a little about what we're doing here at the end of the year. Next week on the 15th, we're doing our end of year 2020 review. We're going to look back at 2020 what happened, right? And this is not just the pandemic, but what happened in the multifamily market space? What went on in terms of deal volume and occupancy and concessions and collections and expense management and uh, all the other things that we look at as investors in that space, uh, as well as things like regulation and interest rates that have an impact, obviously, on what we do. So we're going to look back at that. That's next week. So please join us next week for that. And then we've got a couple special episodes that we're going to run in the last two weeks of the year, Uh, our most popular episode uh, content for 2020, and our most popular episode of all times Uh, will finish off the year. Then on January 5th, we start season five, believe it or not, the fifth season of multifamily real estate investing presented by Mara Poling. And as I had said a couple times coming through here, go to the website, please, the Learning Center, register for the upcoming webinar, State of the Multifamily Market 2021 on January 7th, 11 a.m. out west, 2 p.m. in the east. Register, and you'll get all the content, whether you are able to participate live or not. And please join us again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poli.